Trust is the foundation for everything. With trust, you have creativity, productivity, and financial results. With trust, you have strong marriages and healthy relationships with your kids, parents, and friends. But how do you measure trust? Trust is a relatively intangible, abstract construct that's hard to measure. You can't just send a questionnaire and ask people, what is the level of trust in your organization, for example? Trust is relative, and therefore no absolute answer would be accurate. Yes, trust is the foundation of everything, and you must measure it somehow. In this episode, I'll provide a philosophy of how you should measure trust. Welcome to The Trust Show. I'm Yoram Solomon, your host, the author of The Book of Trust and facilitator of The Trust Habits Workshop. My mission is simple. I want to help you form habits that build your trustworthiness because the answer to this question will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? This is the 10th episode of the fourth season, but starting with this season, we're going to have 12 episodes per season and then one week break before we start with the next season. I'll start with why is trust so hard to measure? Trust is kind of a vague, abstract uh, construct, and uh, there is actually a great book uh, from uh, Douglas Hubbard called How to Measure Anything, and that's a book that uh, is aimed at the corporate at, uh, companies in how you measure things that are more vague, more abstract, more intangible. So that that's a book that I recommend. But uh, I'll start with, is there such a thing even as the overall level of trust in your organization or in a team? And I'll answer that, yes, there is, there are teams with a higher level of trust and and lower level of trust, but we need to keep in mind that that level of trust is made of the individual levels of trust that every one person has in every other person. And, And it's a different level of trust in either direction. So, this is all good for one-on-one trust. My, my whole model is aimed at one-on-one trust. And the way you apply that to the team or the, to the organization is the average of the lowest level of trust that every one individual in that team or company has in another one. Let, let me say this again. It's the average of the lowest level of trust that every single individual has in another one. In other words, it's the weakest link uh, paradigm, if, if you will, or the weakest link, the weakest link uh, approach. So what does that mean? In order for a team to be creative and productive, one of the things they must do is be vulnerable with one another. And when I say be vulnerable, it's willing to ask tough questions, uh, willing to ask stupid questions, willing to suggest stupid ideas. It's the willing to give unfiltered feedback, no BS feedback. It's the receptivity to that kind of feedback. And the problem is that your willingness to do any of those, to be vulnerable, to ask stupid questions, to ask tough questions, to provide feedback, direct and unfiltered, and to be receptive to feedback, depends on how much you trust the other person or any other person. 
So if you trust me a lot, you're going to feel comfortable being vulnerable with me. You're going to feel comfortable giving me feedback and be receptive to, to feedback from me. But if you don't trust me very much, then you're going to be limited in your willingness, not your ability, because you still have the ability. It's, it's just the willingness to give that kind of feedback or, or be that vulnerable. Well, I want you to think about this. You're in a team with three other members. You trust each one of them pretty much with your life. Are you willing to ask stupid questions? Yes, you are. Are you willing to give direct feedback? Yes, you are. We add another member to that team. Now there is a fifth member in the team. But you don't trust that member. What restricts your willingness to be vulnerable, your willingness to give feedback, and your receptivity to feedback? The level of trust that you have in that one single member. That member is the weakest link. That member drags the level of uh, your willingness to be vulnerable and your willingness to give feedback and, and receive feedback and, and hold a constructive disagreement and everything else. It's restricted by that one single member. And this is why... The level of trust within a team depends on the level of trust that every member has all, in all the others, but it's restricted by the level of trust that you have in the weakest link, in the one member that you trust the least. Now, some cases, that member is trusted the least by everyone, and then there is a tough decision to be made. But that's how I look at the level of trust in a team or in a company or any other organization. So first of all, we must look at individual levels, and that's trust law number three. Law uh, trust is personal. So we have to go to the individual levels. We have to also look at the right context. There is no generic I trust you or I don't trust you because I will trust you in certain things and I will not trust you in other things. I can tell you that I'm trusted in certain things and not necessarily trusted by other things. That's trust law number two. Trust is contextual. We also need to ask what is the level of trust that's required for whatever it is the team is working on or the company is working on or, or that you expect from me. That, by the way, is trust law number one. Trust is continuous. It's not binary. It's not that I trust you or I don't trust you. It's, it's how much do I trust you. How much trust is good? What is it that you need? And, and it really depends on the situation. And the situation starts with what is the level of risk? That's objective. What is your fear of that risk? That's subjective. That's a translation, a subjective translation of risk. And how much trust do you need to take you from danger to safety? So how much trust is good? And the final point is that trust relates to dependency. So it really, the level of trust that you need depends on how much you depend on me. If you don't depend on me or my deliverable or what I do for the team, then you don't even need a high level of trust in me. It's when you depend on my deliverable, it's when you depend on what I do for the team or for the company that you need a higher level of trust. So this is kind of the overall philosophy of why is trust hard to measure uh, as opposed to, you know, take a Myers-Briggs and how extrovert you are, that, that's pretty easy. And I'll talk more about that in a future episode when I'll talk about self-trustworthiness assessment. Mm -hmm. 
So I explained why it's hard. Now, so how do you measure it? And I'm going to give you what I call the black box approach. So first of all, let, let's go to the trust chain, which I covered in the Book of Trust, at least in the third edition of the Book of Trust or the mini Book of Trust. We start with the components of trustworthiness. Okay, and those are, uh, and I'll talk a little more about them uh, when I talk about those inputs and outputs. But but those are the uh, the competence, personality, compatibility, symmetry, the uh, positivity, time, and intimacy. So there are the things that lead to my trustworthiness. My trustworthiness leads to the trust that you have in me. And the trust that you have in me has symptoms. And again, I'll talk a little more about that uh, a little later in this uh, part, this segment of, of this episode. But those would be things like, uh, do you give me autonomy? Uh, can we hold a constructive disagreement? And, and so on. So the trust chain, we start with the trustworthiness components. They lead to trustworthiness. Trustworthiness leads to trust. Trust leads to symptoms of trust. If we can't measure trustworthiness or trust, if we look at them as something that's vague, something that's uh, a little intangible, that, that's hard to measure, and, and it's, it's hard to even uh, translate when somebody says, I trust you a lot, what does that exactly mean? I mean, does it mean the same thing for all people? So it's hard to measure, to, to give kind of a scale to trustworthiness or trust, but it's a lot easier to measure the inputs and the outputs. And this is why I propose that we use the black box approach. The black box approach is when something is hard to explain or measure, you look at it as a black box. That black box has inputs and it has outputs. Let's take, for example, an electric motor. Can you really explain how an electric motor works? Well, I can, but that's because I studied it and, and I use a lot of electric motors and, and design things with electric motors. But if you can't, you can look at an electric motor as a box. It has inputs and it has outputs. The input to an electric motor is electricity. How do you measure it? You measure voltage, you measure current and, and maybe frequency. Then there is an output. How do you measure the output? The output is torque. The output is speed. It's RPM. Those are things that are easy to measure. So even without understanding really how the black box works, you can measure the inputs, you can measure the outputs, and as a result, you can really measure the operation of that electric motor or that black box. Back to trust. How do we measure trust? Let's measure the inputs. The, the components of trustworthiness of, of any person or, or all of them we can use them as leading indicators. Those are the leading indicators to the existence of trustworthiness and therefore trust. So if the inputs are there, if the inputs are high, there will be trustworthiness. Trustworthiness will be high. And if trustworthiness is high, so will trust be. Then we measure the outputs, the trailing indicators, the things that come out of trust, the things that exist when trust exists, I call them symptoms. Let's start with the inputs. The inputs are those six components of my trustworthiness model. They are divided into the who you are and the what you do. Who you are, competence. Competence is the more objective, technical, and professional component of trustworthiness. So we can start measuring if the people 
in the organization, one by one, are competent. The second is personality compatibility. That's a more subjective, that's a more emotional, it's a more personal one. So if competence, we can look at somebody's competence, again, in the context of their work, their specific job, more objectively, and all people will see that person as competent pretty much to the same level, not necessarily, but pretty much, personality compatibility is a little different. Uh, There are components that people would look at uh, pretty universally, such as telling the truth, uh, such as caring about me, but there are things that different people would look at differently. So uh, things that are more personal, things that are different, they're not universally or absolutely good or bad, such as being a risk taker or not being a risk taker, being a procrastinator or being somebody who likes to do everything as soon as they get this. The third component is symmetry. It's situational, it's objective. That actually is something that should be measured in the context of a group of people. How symmetrical is the relationship? Is everybody on the same side? Is everybody following the same mission? Is there a common uh, enemy that's on the other side of the wall? Uh, Is there an internal competition? So that again is something that can be measured much easier than, for example, trustworthiness or trust. The second group of components are the what you do. This is what happens during interaction. So once again, we have positivity, uh, which is made of uh, the level of no BS and the level of empathy. Uh, that that can be observed and, and that can be reported by people who are members of uh, the team. Uh, it is accelerated. The positivity is accelerated by time and intimacy which are very objective. I mean, they they come down to how much time do members of that team or members of this company spend with each other? Uh, How frequently do they meet? Uh, How predictably do they meet? Uh, Is it always ad hoc or or is it predictable and uh, uh, scheduled? And the level of intimacy, uh, how do we rank the communications between members of the team? Is it typically uh, over email and text messages, very low intimacy, or is a lot of it uh, held in person? Now, there's no just one right answer. It doesn't all have to be in person, one-on-one, a high level of intimacy, but it's just the balance between the two that, that really matters. So those are all the inputs, the competence, personality, compatibility, and symmetry of all the members of the team, the positivity and the time and intimacy of how they spend time together, how they they interact uh, on the uh, other side. So those are all inputs. Those inputs can be measured. Even the more subjective ones can be measured when you ask one, every one person about the other members of the team. And this is why I started developing the Trust Tracker 360 tool to allow members of the team to reflect on other members and see how they feel about their, uh, most important in this context, the personal element is the personality compatibility. The outputs depend on the relationship. So for example, the relationship between a boss and an employee would have different outputs, and and by the way, different outputs when we look at it from the different directions, from the boss towards the employee, from the employee towards the boss, Uh, different types of outputs uh, when you're talking about peers, when you try to measure the level of trust between peers, between a salesperson and a uh, customer, between a buyer and a seller. If you're looking at a boss, then um, 
whether you trust the boss or not, or I'm sorry, whether the boss trusts you or not, the symptoms, the outputs would be, do you get autonomy to do what you think is right? To, to actually, the autonomy is to how you do it rather than you decide what you want to do. Uh, autonomy versus bureaucracy on the other side. If, if they throw policies at you and you have to do everything by the policy, are you being micromanaged? Uh, things like that are outputs that you can measure. Uh, and, and again, it's, it's personal, so you have to ask an employee to reflect on the level of the autonomy versus bureaucracy, micromanagement, uh, the big picture. Do you get exposed to the big picture or not? that you get from your boss, because that's an indication of whether your boss trusts you or not. If we look at it from an employee's perspective, so the boss is looking at the employee and asks, does the employee trust me? Now you get uh, things on the range between accountability versus CYA, for example. So do we have an employee that really takes responsibility, employee that's not afraid to try things, uh, an employee that's not afraid to fail, employee that knows that uh, the most important thing is the success of the team and not just their own success, um, versus an employee that CYA just does everything uh, by the book and nothing outside of the book draws completely within the lines will not take risks because they're afraid. And the reason that they're afraid is because they don't trust me to keep them in the safe zone if they try something and fail, for example. So uh, in general, some of the outputs that you can measure would be vulnerability, feedback, and receptivity. What is the level of vulnerability that people exhibit in this company? If the level of vulnerability is low, then you have a low level of trust. If people are not willing to give direct, no BS, unfiltered feedback, then the level of trust is low. Um, if they're willing to give, you know, hardcore feedback, feedback that's really needed, not, you know, not to insult other people, not, not to hurt somebody else's people, uh, feelings, not to be disrespectful towards other people. Just give direct feedback, the feedback that they need to hear rather than the feedback that they, you think they want to hear. Then you have a high level of trust. If, you, if people are receptive to feedback, that means that they trust the people who give them feedback. If they're not, then there's a low level of trust. The whole ability to hold a constructive disagreement. So you can measure, you can, again, it's a personal perspective, but it can be measured and reported whether you feel or where do you feel people are in their willingness and ability to hold a constructive disagreement where you can get really, really passionate and argue, but, but it, it doesn't become personal. It doesn't become emotional or irrational versus... Does every disagreement become destructive? It becomes personal. It becomes emotional. It becomes irrational. It's me against you. It's a fight. It's it's a conflict. It's not a disagreement. It's a conflict. Or the, the other side of it, which is the office politics or the politically correct disagreement where, you know, we have the meeting before the meeting, the meeting after the meeting, just not the meeting during the meeting, where things are closed in the hallways and, and in private meetings rather than in, in real meetings where you can benefit from having all of those. So the closer you are to the ability to hold constructive disagreement, or if you're trying to measure it, the more people are reporting the ability within their company or within their team to hold a constructive disagreement, 
versus destructive disagreement or, or holding office politics, the more trust you know that, that exists. Again, that back to that black box. The output reflects on what's in that black box or the level of trust and trustworthiness within the black box. Measuring trust is more qualitative than quantitative. And I'm, I'm going to have to tell you a, a short story. I'll try and make it short. Uh, when I was uh, studying, when I taking coursework for my PhD, uh, at some point I got a call from my uh, academic advisor who said, uh, who asked me if I needed to uh, some help to register classes. So I'll, I'll again, I'll make a long story short. The reason he was calling was because I signed up for the next semester to both quantitative and qualitative research classes. And that's that's unusual because at that point, students typically already know what their uh, research is going to be, and they know what methodology they're going to use and whether it's going to be qualitative or quantitative, and they only take the classes that they need for my, their research. Well, what I explained to him was that I'm taking every single research class the university has. I did not care about having a minor in, in my PhD. I cared about knowing how to do research, both quantitative and qualitative. So I took really every every single uh, research. My um, mentor, uh, Cordy, used to look at them a little differently. Rather than calling them qualitative and quantitative, he called them exploratory and confirmatory or explanatory. So when you do a, st- a, a survey with, with questions, with uh, multiple choice questions, then you're really doing a confirmatory or even explanatory study. You're confirming something you already suspect. When you're doing qualitative research, it's more exploratory. You're more exploring. Now, we love tools that have multiple options. They're very easy to deploy. You can deploy to a very large number of people. What you get comes back in a spreadsheet, whether it's Google Sheets or or Excel or any other, and uh, you just run statistic analysis on it. This is why, by the way, uh, quantitative uh, dissertations are typically shorter in, in length. And mine was qualitative. It was actually mixed methods because there was a quantitative component to it. I, I did some statistical analysis. But uh, when you do qualitative, now you're doing interviews. You're asking questions, open-ended questions. And that that can be a little tricky and take longer. And uh, therefore, you're going to have a smaller sample. Uh, the thing is that... Uh, when you measure trust and, and trustworthiness and even the inputs and outputs, the components of trustworthiness on the input side and the uh, symptoms of trust on the output side, those are relative, those are contextual, those are continuous rather than, uh, you know, I can ask very something very specifically. I'll give you an example of when it's contextual. For example, a, a personality compatibility component can be risk-taking, Okay. But risk-taking might not be an important characteristic for, let's say, a production line uh, job or or position because you don't want people to take risks on a production line or accounting, right? Uh, There are roles in in creativity, in coming up with new products, in marketing where you should be willing to take risks. So it is contextual and... and, uh, so you can you can just say a certain level of risk taking is good. It, it indicates uh, that we're going to have a high level of trust versus not. 
not to mention the personal aspect of it. So the way I, I look at it is, and yes, I do have a tool that's a little more generic. It focuses more on the generic characteristics of uh, trustworthiness, but there are always the unique characteristics that, that really matter in a specific position. If if I limited the the study or, or measuring trust and trustworthiness to standard components, I may be missing the uh, level of trust and trustworthiness that's really needed in the specific context. So the way I would rather measure the inputs and the outputs is, uh, I'll take, for example, on the input side, what makes a person in that role competent? So I'm, I'm taking competence. So I'm, I'm actually going to be sitting with the person who is relying, depending on another person, and to understand the level of trust they have in them, my first question would be, what makes that person competent? Not, not that specific person. What would make a person in that role competent? I may even go a level down with, with uh, some sub-components that, that would help me, like consistency and confidence. So, um, you know, what, what would you say makes a person consistent in that role? Uh, what makes them high performance? How do you measure performance? There are going to be multiple things that come up. You need to ask them to prioritize. What's important to you? What is an important part that would make you tell me that the other person is or is not competent? And then the third question or sub-question would be, so how do you rank them in that important thing? So what would you say is important to have someone in that specific role to, to call them competent? What's important? That they start on time and they finish on time. Okay, fine. That's your perspective, but that's important. Uh, you just prioritized it to me. You said that this is a high importance for you. How would you rank that person, if now we're talking about a specific person, in that in the way you describe consistency. So this is kind of a one, two, three question. What the first one is what makes what would make you say that a person is I, I took competent in, in this case? What would make you say that a person is competent? You're gonna let get a list for each one of them. What's what's most important, or not for each one of them? Prioritize them. Now start with the most important ones. How would you rank that other person? Now, let's take personality compatibility. Again, what would make you say that a person is personally compatible if they're in a specific role? You know, you're the team lead. What would make you say that they're personally compatible with you? Prioritize this. How do they rank on it? Now, you can still do that with surveys, but it's just that instead of doing text, uh, instead of doing multiple options, multiple choices, Use text instead. So kind of open text, ask the question, what makes you think, what, what is the most important thing uh, for you to say that another person in that specific uh, position is competent or is personally compatible with you or is in a symmetrical relationship with you? You may need to guide them a little, give them some examples, but let them use their own words. Rank them one, two, three, maybe, maybe one, two, three is enough. Uh, and then ask them to rank the other person on that uh, scale that you just created yourself. Maybe you can use some kind of artificial intelligence to extract meaning from it. 
Now, I, I really wish I could just tell you, oh, use my Trust Tracker 360. Uh, that's the tool. This is how you measure trust and trustworthiness in your company, in your team. But but really, if, if you really understand how trust works, the eight laws of trust uh, specifically, and you realize that trust is relative, trust is contextual, personal, continuous, asymmetrical, and, and all the eight laws, once you understand them, you realize that you cannot have just one tool. And because trust and trustworthiness are somewhat vague, abstract, intangible constructs, then the way to measure them is really to measure the inputs and the outputs, treat trustworthiness and trust as a uh, black box. And uh, the way you measure them is more personal rather than standard. What would you like to know about trust and trustworthiness? Let me know and I'll answer it in a future episode. I would love to hear from you. Email me at yoram at thetrustshow.com. If you like this episode, subscribe to the show so you will automatically get notified when I release a new episode. Rate it, write a review for this podcast, because those ratings help not only you, but also others looking for podcasts just like this. If you're looking for more resources to learn about how to build trust, be trusted, or know who to trust, look up my workshops at yoramsolomon.com workshops, online courses at trustedatwork.com, find my books on Amazon, or go to my website, yoramsolomon.com. And remember one thing, the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? Thank you for listening or watching The Trust Show.